Hello and welcome. Let's go. This, this is the Learner Journeys with Bastian Kranz. A podcast about the craft and art of facilitating learning. Learning experience design, companionship, enjoy the show. When you're a trainer, a facilitator or a coach, you have quite a bit of freedom on how you approach your work. It needs to work for you, it needs to work for the learners, and if everybody is happy, that's great. In the context of formal education, there are voices that claim that it's not quite so easy. There are curricula, there's a certain amount of work that you need to achieve in a certain amount of time, you have to grade your students, but you get to work with your students over a longer period of time, which is fantastic, but you only get to see them for a short moment each week. My partner and I, we teach a course in intercultural communication at the University of Rotzbach, and I've always grappled with this format. There's an hour and a half each week. Sometimes I teach, sometimes my partner. And not every student is guaranteed to be there each week. It's very hard to build a continuous relationship. Also, there's like 40 or 50 students or so. To really work learner-centered and in an interactive and participatory way in these circumstances and to have modules built on top of each other, that's really hard. So I'm really glad that today I'm joined by an old friend of mine, Justin Citron, because he's been doing this work for a, a long period of time and, and he's really great at it. I've been a teacher for 21 years, which... It's the first time I've said that in a long time, but I've been a teacher for 21 years. I'm Justin Citron. I'm an associate professor of human sexuality studies at Widener University. Widener is located just outside of Philadelphia in the United States. Um, I'm also an associate dean in the College of Health and Human Services. I oversee the, the directors of three academic units, which are the Center for Human Sexuality Studies, the Center for Education and the Center for Social Work Education. Um, so we are, we're sort of the human services area of our school. I grew up as a kid who loved school. And like, I grew up in a pretty rural place and was always in, enthralled by the natural environment around me. Like, I loved building forts and playing in the woods and playing with mud and watching animals and like, oh, maybe I can help animals make a bird's nest and then like they'll use my nest that I created. And so like I was always really drawn to understanding how people tick and how um, the world works in relation with itself. Um, so I think that's why I'm in like this and not in you know, computer science or engineering or something. I think the human living environment is, is something that's always was interesting to me. And I was a kid who like played school when I was at home with my friends and like, I would be the teacher um, or we would take turns being the teacher, but I often, <laughs> I just ended up being the teacher very often. Um, and I think it was just my natural love for the structure and the learning environment because it took that curiosity that I already had and like gave it some structure and put some rules about how we interact with each other and teachers give you stuff to do and you do it and you feel accomplished and I really um thrived in that 
And so then when I went into like my higher high school years and into college, I just became really fascinated with the human body. Like I loved my anatomy and physiology class. I loved learning about the the body systems and how they worked. And I actually was interested in going into medicine or nursing. Um, and when I was applying to college, I was the first person in my family to do that. But that wasn't really a much of a part of our, our growing up. Um, and so when I was going to college, I didn't really know quite how to do it. My school counselors gave me the best sort of direction they could. Um, but I applied for like the life sciences and health sciences. I was a biology major for my first year of, of university. And I really didn't like it because <laughs> I realized like as much as I like understanding how the body works, I'm much more interested in like living and less about like the internal systems. Um, so I went into, I was like, well, my other passion is language learning. And so I'm going to pursue Spanish language and literature. I took five years of it in high school. And then in college, it was my major. Um, my family was like, well, what are you going to do with a degree in language? You should really study something that's useful. Um, and so I studied education because I figured, well, I can always teach people. I like teaching. I like the idea of it. And so I just fell deep into the whole idea of teaching and schools and the history of education in the United States and the world. Um, education is like the church. It's one of like universities and the church are two of the longest living institutions we've had since, you know, before medieval times. And so I think there's a historical piece to it that's really interesting to me. And like education, especially like compulsory public education, really changed the course of industrialization and history um, in the late uh, 19th and early 20th centuries um, and are institutions we rely on. So I think they also make a really like nice fit for me in society. It's like a valued role. I started my prof my professional career. Um, I started my professional career as a Spanish and English language teacher, um, which has its own interesting learning facilitation pieces that I can talk about. The way we are best at teaching people language is facilitating an active and engaged learning process for them because all of us have within us the built-in instinct to learn language. Um, and so we're best teaching people language by mimicking or recreating that natural language learning part of our brain in the classroom. Um, so that informs a lot of how I think about teaching, but I also am a human sexuality professor and the primary work that I do is teaching people culturally responsive sexuality education and culturally responsive approaches to uh, working in communities around sexual health or sexuality topics. And so I also have developed the construct sexological worldview, which is the, you know, comes from worldview theory, which worldview is the way in which we see the world around us and the meaning everything has, and then what we do about that. And sexological worldview then is the way we see the world around us from a sexuality and a sex perspective and the meaning that all of those things have and what we do about that. And it's particularly useful for me because when we're training sexuality educators who are going to go out into a diverse set of communities, we need them to respect and understand that the way other people see the world when it comes to sexuality, relationships, love, gender, etc., 
um, is very different. And so we have to meet people where we are when we're trying to teach them things, especially when it comes to helping them understand their health and health decisions. Um, so I teach a lot of teachers, health educators, um, and others who are interested in doing sexual health work, how to do that in a way that is respectful and adaptive. That's so cool. That that sounds super interesting to me. I mean, sexuality is such an well, almost mysterious topic, very personal, but also full of taboos, dilemmas, insecurities, and, and desires and so on. Like, I'm sure teaching classes on this in university must be both super interesting, but also a little scary, maybe. I mean, it, it's not like, like math, right? I can sit in math class and just like soak up like a sponge these conceptual ideas. Like I hated math when it was memorizing multiplication tables. But once I learned why multiplication matters and exponential growth and understood like, oh, so when things multiply, there's a concept there of multiplication that's really interesting. And like, I can use a calculator to multiply, you know, two, three digit numbers together. I don't need to know that in my head. And I don't even necessarily need to know any of them in my head. I need to understand the concept. So when I got into like trigonometry, geometry, calculus, which are much more applied, like you're trying to solve a problem using math. I just got like so excited, but it also plays to things that I'm really interested in. But like music theory class, even though there's a lot of those same mathematical concepts that underpin music, it isn't what I like about music. What I like about music is the feeling in my body I have when I sing or listen to music. I don't really care how it's constructed. Um, so I think our job as facilitators is to learn about our students or our participants. And I like using the word participant more because it's like students, this idea that like you are applying yourself to study something, whereas participants frames the learner as like an active member of a community. And I see classrooms as a community. Um, and so I think our job as facilitators Educators, so education in English comes from the word educare in Latin, and educare means to lead. And people often don't realize that. But, like, if our job, and when I talk about my educational philosophy as a professor, which we're asked to do during a lot of review processes, I say, like, I'm an educator based on that very old meaning of education and educare, which is to lead, because I do believe there's a role for a teacher or an educator to lead its lead the students or the participants through a process. But we also have to grow ourselves. Learning is a natural process. It's another part of how we survive. And like before we had what we now know as education in this formal setting, you know, humans and other creatures on earth learn every day. It's how we survive and learn to avoid danger, learn to, uh, move toward thriving. Um, and I'm really fascinated by it. I'm super fascinated by how the brain um, responds to learning. And when it comes to the work that I do, which is around teaching people culturally responsive practice and being sensitive to different worldviews and different cultural perspectives, um, there's a lot we can do to affect people's bias, to affect people's worldview, to affect people's worldview, 
And bias and worldview are two things that I think in the world of culturally responsive education or teaching people how to be effective work, working with different people and working in diverse environments, being more inclusive in the way they practice. There's a lot we can offer and there's a lot about neuroscience um, and particularly like affect regulation and the, the role between our limbic system and our prefrontal cortex and how our brain can be our best ally in learning and change and can be our worst enemy. And so, so often our biases are there because of the social constructs around us but it's our emotional connection to those that gets in the way a lot of the times. And there's some really cool techniques we can use that look like mindfulness to kind of deescalate people's fear or fight reactions um, to help them be more effective. And anyway, it's just kind of, I'm finding myself bringing together all the things I've loved about learning and about life um, and finding a way to make space for them especially because I feel like sometimes when you understand not just content and its value, but how people manage their own internal process, you kind of hold keys to their awakening and learning. Um, and I've had students say to me, like, you're a magician. Like, how did you, how did you do that? And I'm like, I'm not a magician, actually. It's quite simple once you know the process. It's just that in formal education, we rarely learn that process of learning. We learn about books. We learn about reading. We learn about doing assignments. We learn about point system and grades, but we don't learn about how to spark and harness the natural curiosity that all of us have and make that a useful tool in a classroom. Um, so I think... When it comes to learning and facilitating people's learning, it's remembering that we are really the facilitator and they are the learner. And if we are trying to pour content into them, that bank idea of a brain and that bank idea of knowledge and learning, we're like wasting our time. But if we can create experiences that lead people to where they need to go. We need to then be there to support them in however their journey goes, because each person's journey is going to be different based on their life experience, based on what they already know, et cetera. Um, Anyway, that's a very long answer to your question, but I think in there are some answers. (laughs) Yeah, many, many answers to many questions. Some of them I didn't ask, but I'm glad you answered them anyway. So, and how do you then translate those ideas into like your classroom where you are with your students? Like, how does that look like? What would I see? What would I hear if I would, you know, be a fly on the wall in your classroom? Could you, you know, take me there and, and show me how it looks like? I think I ask people to show up 100% in the room. And I start almost every educational thing I do, whether it's going to, you know, do a training for resident physicians in the pediatric residency program where I teach sometimes, or going into a room full of school counselors or a room full of undergraduate 
university students who are learning to be teachers. So like wherever I go, one of the first things I do is do a check-in. Like, how are you today? What's one thing that's going well for you? What's one thing you're struggling with? And it can be related to the class, not related to the class. And it's funny, participants often say like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, that's so general. What do you want to know? And I'm like, wherever you want to go with it. And student, you know, participants, students, the learners, they'll, they'll respond in all kinds of different ways. But what we do is value who they are, where they come from, literally like where were you before you walked into the room right now and what's going on in your life? Because if I know someone's in crisis or if I know someone's having like their best day, that's really going to paint for me in my mind where they're at to show up to learn and participate today. So that is one of the things. Um, and I vary my check-ins from like the one I example I just gave to like um, two highs and a low or um, what's one thing you're loving about learning in this class? What's one thing you're dreading? Um but I try to keep it focused more on the social emotional parts of who people are and less on the content because we have plenty of time to talk about the content. And based on how much time I have with people, I'll either have like a super structured and short check in so that I can get through it in like seven to 10 minutes or I'll have like a longer one if I know I have like a whole day with people. And it's not off. It's not. It's also not something I do once. So if I have a longer period of time with people, I'll sometimes do that, like after a meal break or towards the end of the day, is like before we leave. Where are people at? So checking in, um, understanding people's social emotional place and time is one of the things you see. Um, another thing you see is me not talking a lot. I spend a lot of time listening. Um, I spend a lot of time encouraging the participants to engage more. And so when a, when a participant will say like, I didn't like this reading or this reading was really confusing, I'll say, tell me more about that. What was exciting about it or what was confusing about it? And sometimes they look at you, they're like, I don't know. I'm like, that's fine. Take your time. Like, think about it. But but bring that answer back in a few minutes. And then we'll be like, did other people find that confusing? So building community between them. So I think that's the difference between teaching and facilitating. Facilitating is about like getting our students and learners talking to each other. Because part of what is also important about leading educational processes is valuing that um, our learners are engaged in relationships with each other often before we arrive and after we leave. And so when I facilitate conversations between them, I'm often giving them like nourishment for the relationship that will continue when we're on a break or when we leave, because maybe somebody in the, in the room offered insight to somebody who's confused and they can then become partners in that for the future. Right. Like they can then say like, you know, that, Thing you said in class really helped me today. I'd love to talk to you more about that. Um, or can we work on a project together? Because when they're all sitting facing me in a very traditional, you know, power oriented learning environment, the students don't engage with each other. In fact, oftentimes are told not to. And so all of the resources that they could offer each other are, are 
shut down. So check-in, facilitating like that. But then the other, and this is the biggest part, is creating, like instead of thinking about assignments, I think about like at the end of the hour I have with people today or the end of the half day I have, what do I want them to leave with? And that's a pretty standard like educational question. What are our goals and objectives? But when we teach people how to write goals, we often say like, what do you want your learners to leave with? And we think about objectives. We think about what do you want them to be able to do? How are we going to assess whether they can do that thing? And it's like, as soon as we tip that into what do we want them to do and what do we want them, how are we going to assess that they can do it? We suddenly end up in like talking about assignments again. But that is not like assignments are not to prove to us something. Assignments, when we think about them from an assessment, are to measure whether or not they have learned the thing we're trying to teach them. And so I think we're better off setting aside the assessment objective piece and just thinking about like, what do I want them to learn? So like, if I want them to learn um, what intimacy is and how people navigate intimacy in their lives, then I would think about, so like, if if those are the things I want them to learn, how can I create an environment in the classroom where they explore what it is and what it means to them. In a lot of ways I could do that, right? But I then try to think about an activity that will be accessible, easy to engage in, relevant. But remember, like, I can't decide what's relevant for them because if there's 15 people in the room, I can't possibly know what all people's experience of intimacy is. Like, I just can't but I can create an environment for them to share that with each other and to wrestle with it. So I think like we need to think about planning learning activities that engage people with the concepts we're trying to teach them and less about um, measurable things I can count, even though eventually I want them to do that. Like eventually I might want them to be able to write a definition of intimacy and to describe how they would explain what intimacy is to someone else. Cause those are things I want them to be able to do as a sexuality educator, but that's like not for today. That's a follow-up exercise in the classroom. I want them to be talking to each other and engaged and wrestling with tough questions and leaving thinking more, not checking the box that they showed up at class. They did the right thing today and they're going to get an A like that's not the answer. So I think, The other thing you will see me doing in almost every one of my classes is facilitating an activity where they're mostly talking with each other, whether that's in small groups, large groups, um, and reaching beyond the basics. Um, And I do a lot of listening because when I listen... I can tell whether they're doing that thing or not. And if they're not, I can ask the question. So when you ask, like, what kinds of questions do I ask? They're often open-ended questions. They're often questions that either seek comprehension, like, are they getting it? Or are probing for them to go deeper. Um, and I, one of the things one of my mentors said to me was, 
Um, always value the wisdom in the room. And if you're not sure what's going on or if you feel like things are going awry, your participants know more about what's going on than you do. And you're always better off asking them what's going on than trying to figure it out yourself. And I think it's it's the thing I think as educators that we are often not taught because we are taught to be the expert in a room who has something to teach other people. We're not really always taught to be <clears throat> observers and counselors and mentors, and right? So when our students struggle, we often think that we know why they're struggling and we have the antidote to the struggle. But what I've learned to do and found really successful is when my students are struggling saying, what's going on? Why are you struggling? I see you. I see what's happening. What's that about? And a lot of times they're like, we need a break. And I'm like, that's the last thing I would have thought about, but let's take a break. And that's an easy solution. But if I go into my world of like, they're not understanding the concepts and overcomplexify, I'm going to miss what they really need. And sometimes they'll say like, you told us we talked about this thing yesterday. We didn't talk about that. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's right. Because I talked about that in my other class and I forgot that that was you. And sometimes they're legit just like, we're confused. We don't actually know what it is you want us to do. Or we're really wrestling with this concept. And then I think, okay, so I need a break so I can regroup myself and think about how am I going to fix you better understand the concept. Um, anyway, so it's, that's like responsiveness, right? It's like figuring out where people are at and showing up for them rather than driving my agenda for what I'm trying to get through in 45 minutes. So in the university context, uh, what I find and found uh, very, very tricky for me because I typically don't work all the time in the formal education system. I'm mostly outside of it. But every winter semester, my partner and I, we, uh, we give this class in intercultural communication. And what I find so hard is this, you have just an hour and a half every week, and that's it. And you do that for three and a half months, and that's really great. But but still, this these 90 minutes there, like they can go by so fast and you have to cover so much in this time. So like, do, do you really have time every time to do a, a check-in or how do you balance kind of this momentary interaction with the longer term uh, engagement with your students? I think a lot of it is how we think about time. Because what you just described is the way a lot of us have taught, have been taught. Like we, we had that experience as learners. So that's sort of what we expect our own classrooms and when we're the teachers to look like. But when we think about time as more of a continuum that like there's all the time the students have before they show up to learn. There's all the times they have after they leave our, our environment. Then it's about how are we using this particular time we have with them. The whole active classroom we call like people call it the flipped classroom movement is about this idea of time and how we use our time. And the idea that our students have a ton of time to dedicate to our class other than the hour and 15 minutes 
or hour and a half they're actually in a, in a space with us, whether that's an online space or an in-person space. Um, so what's the best value for the time we have together? <clears throat> and so when we think about time that way, the flip classroom, active classroom movement is about like, don't use that precious hour and 15 minutes or hour and a half to lecture at them. Give them a recorded lecture or readings or both that they can do in preparation for their time with you so that when they show up with you, you are making the most of the time together and focusing the synergy and active participate uh, the synergy and active participation that they can do when they're together that they can't do when they're sitting on their couch or laying in their bed or sitting at the desk alone reading or watching a video. Um, and there's some even interesting ways where you can capture a lecture, give it to students, and then they can even comment to each other like you would in a Word document, but it's in like a recorded video or something where they can, so that they can still ask questions at the times they would naturally have them. And they can still engage in like a classroom discussion in a comment feed. And you can even go back and answer those questions and engage in that comment feed with them, but in an asynchronous way. Um, so because ultimately they're moving beyond attaining the basic concepts and moving into that more complex understanding is better with you there as a facilitator than, you know, just learning what the basic concepts are. Um, I think the challenge with flipped classrooms is often what people do is provide a lot of reading and provide um, a lecture to watch which isn't quite what it's supposed to be about because we still have to facilitate people's process when they're learning individually or asynchronously. For example, I will often give learners or participants a something to read. I don't, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I'm doing a podcast interview because I actually don't like to record myself. I don't like to record lectures. Um, so I'm in, tend to be inclined to give folks reading to do or to find content online that I can share with them that meets my needs so that I don't record it myself. Um, <clears throat> but I will also often give them those things with a set of discussion questions or like personal analysis reflection questions. And I'll say, I want you to answer these questions in a reflection like just in notes to yourself. And you can either take a photograph of those notes or you can upload a Word document with your notes in them so that I can see they engaged in that process. But those questions are usually the first step at, do you understand this? Does this make sense to you? Asking them to apply what they're reading to their own experience or their own thinking so that when they show up for class they're already like chewing on what it is that I asked them to look at so that when I have them for that hour and 15 minutes, I can do my activities. I can even sometimes that activity is just a discussion, but it's a very carefully planned and thought out discussion. That's like over here as a guide for me, 
but I ultimately am listening and watching where they're going because there are so many ways to get through my guide. I don't have to follow my linear set of questions. Um, But so I think it's a lot about like making sure we remember all the other time our learners have, because if they're going to be spending time preparing for my class, I'm the best one to facilitate that process for them. Because oftentimes you're like, these are the three things I'm supposed to read for class this week. So I read them. But if I, you know, it often happens to me and I think happens to a lot of us, like it's easy to read 25 pages. And then when you think about pages 10 through 15, you realize you were brain dead for those five pages and you actually have to go back and reread them. Whereas when we give people prompts and things to think about as they're reading, it engages them in more than just looking at the words on the page. You said earlier that the brain can be the best ally in learning, but also its own worst enemy. And I was wondering if you could go into that a little bit more. Yeah, so in order for our prefrontal cortex to do the executive thinking and complex information management, our limbic system has to be in balance. So our, like they call it, you'll hear people call it the lizard brain or your flight or fight response. So when we are at ease, that's when we daydream. And I actually just heard a a great um, podcast with one of the leading researchers in deep thinking. They're talking about the difference between like deep thinking and machine learning. Because like now that we have computers that can do this very complex algorithm analysis and like exploratory thinking how is that different from the human brain and like will machine thinking replace these like scholarships who spend careers thinking right and he was like here's the thing like the best part of our human brain is creativity and so the reason that good ideas come to us in the shower or when we're on a hike or when we're literally lounging doing nothing is because our brain, number one, our emotional system in those times is usually relaxed. And our brains are not busy doing a task. And so we free up all of that brain energy to be creative. And like executive function and creativity are like, it's like a switch in our brain between those two functions. And so... If we're constantly giving ourselves tasks to do, we're not opening up the opportunity for our brain to like relax and just go into like creative land. Um, So that's one of the ways. The other way is when our limbic system is triggered and we're in flight fight response, we can't process um, what to do about it. It's why people get into like road rage because they're, their emotions are so heightened that they don't think rationally about being violent to another person. Cause like I, I have a few friends that I don't like to drive in the car with, but when I do, they're like that bastard cut me off. And like the next five minutes, like we're talking about that bastard who cut you off. It's like, but you have brakes and like, we're all like, he only made it or she only made it like six cars in front of us. Like, why are we allowing this like anger fear response take over the time we're spending together as friends in the car. Like, and so 
we just can't think logically. So when it comes to learning, if our students are not emotionally present and relaxed in our classrooms, anything we're trying to jam into that front of their brain is not going to make it because frustration and anger and doodling is going to happen because that, you know, they're not going to pay attention. So that's part of why, like, I mean, the check-in in and of itself is not going to fix it, but it will give me a sense of where people are at. And it will set, at least for me, what expectations I should have that are reasonable and what expectations might not be reasonable today. Um, and I often will ask people when I'm doing guest lecture, like to tell me more about what environment I'm entering. Like, what will the group of people have been doing before I showed up and where are they headed after? Because again, that provides a lot of context for me for where they're coming from. Um, so on the flip side, if, if our brain is in a good place um, and guided imagery, meditation, mindfulness kinds of exercises can be really great to get your learners closer to that place, then when we challenge them to use that executive functioning, to use that um, brain, you know, that information source of their brain, they're going to have much easier time doing it because they're in a better place. And when it comes to working around bias and culture and teaching people to be responsiveness. Um, and I think the coronavirus is a really interesting example. So in, in health education, which is a lot of the work we do in my field, trying to reduce um, unplanned pregnancies, HIV, STI risk, like a lot of the work in sexual health, like that's our goal is to reduce those things. And the way we have to do that is by asking people to change their behavior. But if somebody's in an abusive relationship, they're going to be in that emotionally aroused fight or flight space a lot in that relationship, which is going to make it hard for them to try a new strategy with their partner to deny sex or refuse sex or perhaps pursue sex because their emotions are not in a place of like intentional behavior. Their emotions are in a angry, frustrated, fearful, scared. Um, so when we're asking people, you know, a person comes into their space and they're a therapist, a counselor, whoever, and that person triggers in them a fear response or even, I think, an, ar an aroused response, like, I think you're really sexy or hot, then it's going to be there. And that emotional arousal, whether positive or negative, is going to keep me from thinking most... That, um, that experience is going to keep me from thinking most clearly, most intentionally. And so if we teach people those mindfulness strategies, like how can you, when you're in that aroused state with a client or a student, practice those breathing techniques, try to um, flip the switch of your limbic system to get it closer to calm so you can get yourself to a place where you can rely on that, that frontal part of your brain um, to think clearly. Um, so, as educators, we're constantly need to be aware of where our students are so that we can make the brain our friend and our helper and not our enemy in learning. And I think your example of you know, if we have students sitting in class who hate being there, 
then us trying to teach them anything is going to be the worst thing. But if we can find out what it is they hate about being there and what is we can do to change them um, or get them closer to it, you know, we can, or we just adjust our expectations. You know, I've had, I've had um, students come in. I'm like, this student today is going to be not in a learning place. So I just need to set my, my own expectation that I'm not going there with them. And I'm not going to call on them. I'm not going to push them. I'm not going to nag them because that's going to make it worse, not better. So what I should do is let them be and perhaps follow up with them after class, follow up with them next week, um, and try to facilitate a parallel process for them to, to help them through. Yeah, that's, that's really, I mean, I want to say that's really nice of you, but I think it's actually more than that I think what you're doing there in your work and with your students Justin is you allow humanity to to be there you know to to look for the curiosity in your students about the things that matter to them and how you can offer something that nurtures that but also you allow them to be human in your classroom and and you help them feel safe and feel welcome and feel warm wow I mean I <laughs> I would have liked to have a, a professor like you when I was a student I had some great professors but I think you still take it up a notch there so yeah thank you and thank you for being on, on Learner's Journey and also thank you to the listener for again allowing me and Justin today into your ear, into your life. And I hope that listening to this conversation was meaningful for you, that it was interesting for you, that maybe it inspired you if you're a teacher or a professor or facilitate learning in any other ways to, to do it your way. And yeah, that's it for this week's episode. And bye.